You would actually have a public execution enacted in the arena, the most extravagant of which would involve setting up a kind of mythological context so that it looked as though you were reenacting a myth of, say, Orpheus charming the animals, but then at the 11th hour, one of the animals would, on cue, actually turn on so-called Orpheus and rip him to shreds. Imagine walking into an arena hundreds of years ago and looking around and seeing thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of rabid fans screaming at you. And you're standing there in the middle of this arena and other doors open around you and out from them come wild animals perhaps, or other people armed with shields, with swords, with all sorts of weapons. And suddenly you're thrust into a life or death battle in the arena, in the Roman arena specifically. You're, you're a gladiator and you have to kill or be killed. A leopard might jump at you, a, a lion might jump at you, maybe even elephants might come at you, as well as other humans may come towards you with swords, with spears. It's life or death, it's bloody, it's violent. There are a lot of popular imaginings as to what the gladiatorial combat was like, what Roman games were like but a lot of those popular imaginings are fictional. A lot of them were made up. A lot of them were popularized or romanticized far after the actual Roman games. But nevertheless, the Roman games had a massive impact on Rome and the broader area. And indeed, they continue to have an impact on some ways we live today. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. We're joined today by a wonderful historian, a classicist, Kathleen Coleman, who's the James Loeb Professor of the Classics at Harvard University. She's the author of a number of books and articles, including Images for Classicists, which was published back in 2015, as well as Marshall Lieber Spectacularum Set Translation and Commentary, published back in 2006. And she has perhaps the highest distinction of being one of my favorite history professors of all time. And indeed, she was my professor in my freshman year in college. So this is a real honor. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's a huge pleasure to talk to you again after all these years, Alex. <laughs> it's been a long time. As I said a minute ago, the Roman games have a tremendous amount of real estate, I think, in people's imagination. When you think of Rome, you think gladiators. But I, I'm not particularly clear, and I, I don't think our listeners are either. Why did the Roman games begin? How did this, this kind of odd kill-or-be-killed uh, gladiatorial combat, and all the other types of games they had. Why did they start? Well, uh, we don't often know too much about the origins of Roman practices, but in this particular case, all the Roman sources are more or less unanimous about the first gladiatorial combat in Rome. That doesn't answer the question where it came from to Rome, but the Romans themselves believed that the first gladiators were made to fight at the funeral celebration for a distinguished senator, Eunice Brutus, in precisely the year 264 BCE, which is the year in which the First Punic War broke out, as it happens. 
And this was a way of honoring a very distinguished member of society. And the people who fought at his graveside were slaves. That's what the Romans themselves believed were the origins of gladiatorial combat in Rome. There is a great deal of discussion in scholarly circles about whether this was originally practiced by the Etruscans, who lived in the central part of Italy long before the Romans developed their city and their civilization, or whether it was practice that was common further south in, among the, the, uh, the Samnite peoples. But at all events, the Romans themselves very, very specifically tied gladiatorial combat to funeral celebrations. The beast hunts are something slightly different, and uh, the sources there associate those with the Punic Wars and the uh, availability of large numbers of animals from North Africa. And the, the North Africa piece is, is a fascinating piece I want to come back to later because that had such a big impact on the environment in North Africa and in kind of a, an environmental movement prior to the modern era. Something you mentioned, though, spurs a thought in my mind, which is we live in a very peaceful society now, broadly speaking. There are, of course, wars. There are, of course, uh, violent acts committed, but generally speaking, quite peaceful. The idea of celebrating someone's funeral by fighting seems quite alien, I think, to the modern mind. You're, you, you were steeped in uh, so many texts from that time period, but is there a sense that the humans, that the people were very different back then, that they lived in a much more violent reality than we do today? Was violence just much more commonplace? I'm going to answer that question slightly obliquely by saying that I think, and this is meant to sound paradoxical, death happened far more frequently in antiquity and far more visibly. In other words, the life expectancy was far shorter, especially, obviously, uh, for the lower classes. And the principle of trying to keep people alive as long as possible is a very modern idea and was certainly not uh, familiar uh, in antiquity. So that that's part of it. Also, I won't say that violence was, was more prevalent, but I think the, the safety nets of modern society and the guardrails were, were missing. So that maybe not overt violence, but people had such short, brutish lives, many of them. And I suppose it was just far more common uh, to see uh, people starving, people maybe dying on the street, certainly things like child mortality were so prevalent. So there was a different evaluation uh, maybe put on human life. And also one key, key distinction, which I think is the key distinction for understanding anything about the Romans, is the fundamental distinction between slave and free. That is absolutely key to understanding the Roman games because those first gladiators who fought at that funeral were slaves. And uh, indeed, in order to fight throughout Roman history as a gladiator, you either had to be a slave or, and this is the interesting part, assimilated to the status of slaves. In other words, we do have evidence for freeborn people who voluntarily took the gladiatorial oath and agreed to subject themselves to the life or death authority of their owner, owner-trainer, in order to fight uh, in the arena. And those were a type of contract gladiator 
who after a certain number of years uh, will have been uh, released from gladiatorial service. But somebody who is um, a slave and fights as a gladiator has obviously no guarantee that he will ever uh, be freed. Although given the uh, extraordinary propensity of the Romans to manumit, that is to say, to free their slaves, which they did far more commonly than any other society that's ever been slave-owning, as far as I'm aware, then there would have been obviously the possibility that uh, a gladiator could uh, hope to ultimately to gain his freedom. But because he was a slave, or as I've just said, assimilated to the status of a slave while he was serving as a gladiator, that meant that he had no control over what would happen to him. And you could do to slaves what you could not do to a fellow freeborn Roman. The fact that someone would willingly put themselves into slavery to be a gladiator, I think, speaks to something really foundational here, which is so important to understanding the Roman games, which is that they must have been incredibly important to that society. The fact that someone would put them into slavery speaks to me to either they have no other options or, or secondarily, maybe was it an honorable thing? Were they like the movie stars of their time? To some extent, were they famous? Were they were they wealthy potentially? Were they renowned? Well, uh, there are two sides to this. One is, as you just said, if they have no other options, and we do believe that maybe agreeing to fight uh, voluntarily as a gladiator to enter the gladiatorial training school and subject yourself as though servile to the gladiatorial training may have been a way to avoid debt, because slaves couldn't own anything. And if you can't own anything, you can't owe anything. So it may have been a way of, of debt avoidance. But um, to go to the other uh, side of your question, gladiators were branded as infamous, that is to say, literally unspeakable. So they had a legal stain upon them as a result of their uh, professional career. And that's the same uh, legal disadvantage that would have adhered to prostitutes, say, and actors also. And this is a a legal uh, disability, which meant they couldn't take inheritances and things like that, and it would persist, this legal disability. But although they had this status of being unspeakable, so a real stain on their reputation, they nevertheless, I think, did garner a lot of admiration for their physical prowess, their physical and also their emotional bravery. And there's a passage of Cicero where he says that even slaves can can redeem something of admiration and status by by showing uh, their bravery as gladiators. So that um, I think there's a lot of kind of maybe societal self-delusion involved here, that they found ways to, uh, if you like, rationalize the practice of gladiatorial combat in their society. But fundamentally, it wasn't something you had to question because, as I've said, slaves were a category of society who you could do to what you willed, what you would, because uh, they were property. And as property, they could be disposed of pretty much at the owner's will. And that, I think, is a fundamental reason why the Romans could accommodate a practice like gladiatorial combat and indeed feel 
that it was a sort of a badge of honor in their society, that it was something for them to be proud of. This was what they did. And they exported this practice around their empire, including in the Greek East, where interestingly enough, we see very few actual amphitheaters being built as custom designed arenas for gladiatorial combat. But we do see a lot of the Greek theaters being adapted for gladiatorial combat. So the first few rows of seating would be removed and there would be safety barriers erected and that kind of thing. So that in the orchestra, in the performance space at the front, you could have people fighting each other or fighting beasts or whatever. So the fact that they were prepared to adapt their theatres and no longer apparently watch Sophocles and Aeschylus, but uh, instead watch their own games, says something about the export of that cultural practice across the Roman Empire. Why do you think the games were so important that they that they were exported? I mean, that, that's that there's obviously some sort of violence uh, that that is inherent in in human nature, and I think today you might draw a parallel to say football or uh, rugby or, or any of those contact sports as a albeit lighter version of gladiatorial combat. You have these athletes bashing against each other to to try to win a contest, but in in your examination of of Rome over the years, why do you think the games were such an integral part of their culture? Well, there are various ways into this issue. One is that the association with with funerals, I think, continued and didn't die out. But alongside that association, some of the late Republican strongmen, people like Julius Caesar, managed to associate the games with political capital. So that Caesar, for instance, I think it was eight years after his uh, daughter Julia had died, when he got back finally to Rome after various campaigns, he held funeral games in her memory. And it's a little tenuous when it's eight years later, the connection, uh, in which he had really splendid gladiatorial combat and all sorts of other games. And this uh, was, of course, very impressive and uh, hugely interesting for the population to view. And so we see the games becoming a form of political capital where it actually becomes written into the requirements for various office holders that they have to throw these games. The aediles in Rome were responsible for putting on games involving beasts, for example. And some of the priesthoods, uh, especially in the Greek East, Uh, under the Roman Empire, actually required the priests to be able to finance a troop of gladiators because for various festivals, they had to be able to supply gladiatorial combat as part of uh, the celebrations. And so they had to be wealthy enough to own a troop of gladiators or at least be able to take over the troop of gladiators from their predecessor. And we are told in one of the sources that this became so difficult in late antiquity that it became really hard to find people who were willing to stand for some of these offices because it just became such a tremendous drain on their finances. And there's one great inscription uh, from somewhere in Italy where the emperor actually helps somebody with a subvention uh, so that he can put on his his games. He really couldn't afford it, but he needed to do it uh, for the office that he was holding. Was it commonly then a, a form of controlling the populace to a large degree? Well, 
the venues where these were performed would generally only hold a small proportion of the uh, the population. I mean, the Colosseum is the largest stone amphitheater to have survived. And although the ancient sources say that it held 87,000 places, and the word is locker, modern estimates reach the figure of a maximum, really, of about 50,000 people could be fitted in there at any one time. So there's a discrepancy between modern estimates and what the ancient sources say. But even for the sake of argument, if the ancient source was correct that 87,000 people could get in there at any one time, which seems like a massive overestimate, the population of Rome under the reign of Nero was a million, at least. And so that's a very small proportion of the population who can watch these things. And they were only held a few times a year. That's another myth that has to be exploded here, that they're not daily occurrences. This is a big deal. These happen for certain festivals and on certain occasions, like the emperor's birthday and that kind of thing. And so I wouldn't say necessarily uh, imperial control, but it's a way of uh, entertaining uh, a portion of the population. And the other thing to remember is that these mega games that are put on in, in the capital by the emperor are mirrored in miniature throughout the empire by these small scale local magnates, you know, the mayor of some little town somewhere in southern Italy, or, um, you know, a town councillor somewhere over there in Syria or something. And they put on uh, these games and they get a lot of street cred for doing it because it's a, it's a cool occasion. And I think it's really important to realize how this becomes implicated in the Roman economy. At the event itself, you're going to have all the little sausage sellers and so forth. We have inscriptions and we also have at least one wall painting which show some of these little booths where these people would sell fast food. We have obviously to think about the, the actual uh, training and housing uh, of the gladiators themselves in the gladiatorial barracks. We have to think about importing the animals over huge distances. Some research that's been done by a Canadian scholar comparing uh, relatively modern evidence from the zoos of the late 19th century has estimated a massive rate of attrition in these animals. So if you imported something like 100 lions from Africa, you know, maybe five or seven might survive to actually perform in the arena. So that the economic factor is huge here, I think. That's a great segue into the discussion of what the economy, the politics that that were shaped by these these games. And the environmental aspect, again, is is such an interesting piece here because uh, the despeciation uh, of North Africa in particular uh, obviously really reshaped the natural world. But to your point, when you walk through the Colosseum in Rome, let's say, I think it's very obvious, even from a modern perspective, that that is something unique. It is a massive ruin to have survived to modern day. I think it's very obvious that that was of great import to that civilization, to the Romans, even to modern day Rome. And have you encountered or or do you have a good sense of what a modern day equivalent for the size of the Roman games was from an economic perspective? Is there any surviving source or testament as to uh, how much of the economy was driven by these gladiatorial games around the empire? That's a very difficult question to answer. One of the few ways we can 
trying to estimate costs of this nature is to look at something like the daily wage of an artisan, if one happens to know it from a particular period and have any evidence from that same period for expenditure on the games. And it's, it's very, very rare because our evidence is so fragmentary from antiquity for us to have that kind of correlation of evidence. But we do have one legal text surviving from the second century CE where the jurist Gaius is trying to illustrate the difference between hire and purchase. And he says, listen, think about gladiators. If you rent a gladiator and return him to his barracks in reasonable shape so that he can fight again, just with a few nicks and scratches maybe, you rent him for 20 denarii. Whereas if he gets either killed in your games or so severely wounded that he'll never fight again, basically you've bought him and you pay a thousand denarii. And that's a very interesting piece of evidence because it shows us the markup there between renting a gladiator and purchasing a gladiator. So that I think you can see that the economic factor here will be will balloon massively uh, in cases of uh, fatality because effectively the gladiators are your uh, capital investment if you are uh, running one of these troops and then the entrepreneur who will hire your gladiators to put on games and get a lot of cachet and, and personal sort of kudos out of mounting such games is going to have to pay very, very heavily if he damages your goods. And does the fact that the gladiator would cost a thousand denarii if they were killed, only 20 to quote unquote rent them, does that imply that they were thought to have a useful life, so to speak, of about 50 fights? Well, we don't know how many fights on average they would have fought in their uh, fighting career, but the number that's attested on uh, the surviving tombstones is far lower than that. I can think of one gladiator from Sicily whose name is Flammer. That is a speaking name. It must have been his stage name. It means flame. So that's, you know, a fiery kind of... Uh, good, a good, strong gladiator name, I think. Exactly, and a threatening one. Yes, exactly. He fought 34 times, and that seems to be a big, big deal because it's mentioned so emphatically, and then it's divided up into how many times he won and how many times he got a reprieve, which effectively means he was defeated, but it didn't lose his life, and it also lists the number of times he fought too. To a draw when the, the fight was inconclusive because neither gladiator was able to overcome the other one. And maybe you could let me just at this juncture point to the fact that because uh, gladiators were such a big investment and they were so costly in terms of their training, their housing, their diet, etc., etc., the pressure obviously was on not to kill them. And there were times actually in the empire when uh, the emperors would forbid fighting to the death. And granting a gladiator a reprieve was, I think, partly a way to respect the enormous investment uh, that went into these people. And the occasions on which we know for certain that somebody did not receive a reprieve for losing a fight are occasions when he clearly made some absolutely fundamental error that he should not have lost that fight. I'm thinking here of a, of a mosaic, a late antique mosaic that's now in a museum in Madrid, where it's in two registers. And in the lower register, which you read first, 
a very lightly armed gladiator called a retiarius who has a trident and a net and virtually no armor to protect him, has managed to throw his net over his very heavily armed opponent. And so that guy who's struggling under that net should have lost. The chap with the, with the trident should have just skewered him and then gone in with his little dagger and finished him off. But the upper register of that mosaic shows that, in fact, the guy with the net over him somehow managed to push the other fellow down, and he is gesturing for his life with his right hand, and the inscription tells us that he died. He did not get away with his life for that. That was a no-no, that mistake. And that must have been an incredible fight that someone made a mosaic of it. That must be one for the ages, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. And because it's inscribed with the actual names of the gladiators and a great deal of detail about the combat must mean that it's not a generic image, but a specific illustration of a specific fight. And I think this all speaks to something so interesting, which is is a very easy misconception to have, I think. I, I certainly think this way and thought this way a lot of my life, but you paint a picture of gladiators almost like professional athletes. They're they're expensive, you have to feed them, you don't want to kill them. But you watch a movie like Gladiator, and man, it's exciting when Russell Crowe comes out and you know cuts the gladiator's head off or stabs him or whatever. But I think the popular imagination is that gladiators must have just been killed left and right all the time. But is that not really the case? Is that a misconception? I think that is a misconception. It's very, very hard for us to amass statistics for this. But a French scholar in the 1960s, Georges Ville, did some computations based largely on the evidence from tombstones. And he calculated that one in 10 combats resulted in a fatality, which means 5% of the gladiators died in combat. 5% because there were two fighting, obviously, in each engagement. And so that's far lower than the popular imagination, which basically gives you a 50-50% chance of survival. But that's not the way it worked. There are so many gladiatorial tombstones where the gladiator or his survivors frankly say, this guy was named so-and-so, and he was from such-and-such such a place, and he fought as such-and-such such a type of gladiator, and he was reprieved X number of times, you know, and he died at the age of whatever. And so the, apparently there was no shame in saying that you'd been reprieved X number of times. It doesn't say he was defeated X number of times. It just says he was reprieved X number of times. We touched on animals and, and North Africa, the speciation of animals from North Africa. And I, I wanted to dig into that for a few minutes because I think the environmental crisis as it's viewed today is given a uniquely perhaps modern flavor. Like this is something that we today in the contemporary world are doing to the earth. But you hinted at something really fascinating, I think, that the gladiatorial games, the Roman games were such a big industry that there was actually a problem of despeciating Africa, of taking of so many animals out of the north of Africa that it was noticeable that there were fewer of a particular species here and there. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? What happened in North Africa and, and how was it possible in antiquity that this industry was so big that they actually caused a big environmental impact? That, that feels like such a uniquely modern phenomenon. Sure. I'll try and, and tell you what we know about this. And one thing is that we've got a lot of evidence for the sodalitates, so the, the companies or the firms, if you like, 
which exported animals from Africa. We have a lot of uh, inscriptional evidence for that. And sometimes they exported other things as well, like olive oil and so on. So it could be a kind of a diversified economy, if you like. And we have a few figures for numbers of animals killed in some of the big imperial extravaganzas in Rome, 5,000 animals in one day, 11,000 animals in a set of games, that kind of thing. But the local small-scale games that were put on, you know, in some little municipality somewhere in central Italy, would be very proud of the fact that they had four bears or five toothed animals, which would probably be lions, that kind of thing. So, you know, very small numbers of animals. But as I said earlier, if you managed to put on five toothed animals, maybe you'd have to import 100 toothed animals in order to get those five to survive. And there are several letters from various Romans to one another lamenting the attrition rate of animals that they tried to import. In terms of actual despeciation, the only firm evidence I can think of, if you can call it firm, is that the elder Pliny talks about Africa as a source for bears. And indeed, there are mosaics from Carthage and other places which show bears performing tricks in the games. And if it is the case that that those illustrations reflect what's happening in that community, which of course is not necessarily the case, then we can certainly say that without a shadow of doubt, there's no bear in Africa anymore and have not been for many centuries. So it's possible that the Roman games had something to do with that. I can also think of a late Roman epigram where the epigrammatist congratulates his fellow Romans on having cleared North Africa of the scourge of animals thanks to the amphitheater. But that, of course, is a somewhat hyperbolic claim, and it's exactly the kind of sort of then and now contrast that epigram is built on. So we have nothing like, you know, a sociological study or, or an ecological study of the effects of the games on the North African ecology. But we can only try and, and put the fragments together and make some sort of educated guess. But the numbers of animals that were exported must have been enormous the numbers that were displayed to have been possible. You touched on this. Was there a, an environmental movement of sorts in the course of the Roman games, people writing each other, lamenting the, the killing of animals? Was there an environmental movement at all in the, the way we'd think about it these days? Alas, I, I fear probably not. I think what the Roman games do is very much celebrate man's mastery over nature. And when you think about it without YouTube and Animal Planet and all that kind of thing, it was, must have been pretty remarkable to sit in the, in the Colosseum in Rome and see a giraffe or something like that, uh, something that was not native to the Italian peninsula at all. And there's this extraordinary beast right there in the middle of the arena for you to view. And it's not just static in a cage like it would be in a modern zoo, but it's actually moving around and doing its giraffe-like thing. So I think they were, were very impressed by what uh, they'd managed to do in terms of mastering uh, nature and bringing it under control and pr producing this miracle of the wilds of Africa in the center of great capital, that kind of thing. My reading of more modern sources uh, in regards to species like the passenger pigeon or whales, and we talk about whaling on this program as a, for instance, it, it seems that there's a sense in more modern times where we have more sources that the natural world is almost an infinite resource. And I would guess that back in the Roman times, it felt even more so, that it just seemed like 
animals were nearly infinite in their abundance. I'm sure that's the case. And if you read uh, some of the notebooks of um, the early settlers, European settlers in a place like the Cape of Good Hope at the tip of Southern Africa, a place just teemed, teemed with animals. Or indeed in North America, the buffalo on the plains. Right. You couldn't see anything except buffalo. So I'm sure that, that the Romans you know, lacked the sense that this was all going to run out and that they could be partly responsible for that. That's not to say that some people didn't complain terribly when people seemed to be acting contrary to nature. And this is a philosophical commonplace. You meet it in Seneca and elsewhere, that people who um, you know, sleep all day and then party all night, that kind of thing, are really living contrary to nature, or people who plant trees on the roofs of their houses and things like that. It shouldn't be like that. But this is somewhat different from a true ecological sensibility, I think. I wanted to touch on, a, I think, a fun topic, which is misconceptions about the Roman games. And, and we touched on one of these. It, it's easy to watch Gladiator and think that gladiators were just killed willy-nilly in combat all the time. What are some other misconceptions like that? And, and one thing that comes to mind is when I think the Roman games, I think purely gladiators, but that's not really all there were, right? Weren't there other games that took place? Certainly. Uh, there were the beast hunts, for one thing, the venationes, where you would have a staged uh, beast hunt with these highly trained hunters who, who knew how the animals behaved. And our early evidence for this actually talks about importing the hunters from Africa precisely to deal with the animals that came from there because those people were expert in the behavior of those animals and knew how to overcome them. In many cases, you would also sort of be able to pit the animal against the human by giving the, the human some form of protection, like a sort of swiveling screen that he could hide behind so that he could kind of outwit the animal. So it's very much an idea of trying to pit the animal's strength against the human's wit, if you like. You also occasionally had these naumachiae, so these um, staged naval battles in venues where you could actually flood them so that you could have an historical or a fictitious uh, battle enacted, a historical battle reenacted or a fictitious battle enacted between teams of combatants. This was a way of getting rid of, you know, excess prisoners of war, if I can put it cynically in that way. There were also the types of spectacle where you would actually have a public execution enacted in the arena, the most extravagant of which would involve setting up a kind of mythological context so that it looked as though you were reenacting a myth of, say, Orpheus charming the animals. But then at the 11th hour, one of the animals would, on cue, actually turn on so-called Orpheus and rip him to shreds. That would be the most extravagant form of the type of execution known as a damnatio at bestias, where condemned criminals were actually condemned to death by mauling by animals. These kinds of, of events, I think, were, were much less common. And we do have uh, some literary evidence for them, but we also do have some visual evidence from mosaics and other sources. So we know that those things did happen. And indeed, some of the Christian martyrdom stories involve people being martyred in precisely this context in the arena. And I can think of the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas in Carthage, which actually took place to celebrate the birthday of the emperor's son. 
Now, today, I hope we would not think of that as a birthday present. It'd be a, a particularly gruesome birthday present. It's amazing, I think, to think about the average Roman person, citizen or, or otherwise, walking into, say, the Colosseum and seeing hundreds or dozens of beasts fighting humans or perhaps even a naval battle in, in a Colosseum like that. I, I, I seem to recall there there is some evidence that there were actually ships that were floating in water in the Colosseum. Is that the case? Yes, it's hard to pass the evidence because you've got the practical issue of actually how, how would you get the things in there. But it does seem that the, the literary evidence insists upon uh, the veracity uh, of this having happened. So there are ways to explain that, yes, at certain periods, particularly at the beginning of the career of the Colosseum, when it didn't yet have the stone foundations in the basement area, it may have been possible to flood it to a certain depth and have a kind of miniature naval battle reenacted there. You have the, I think, difficult task as a, as a classicist, as a historian of teasing out so much of this information from very thin sources at times. You have to piece together information, I'd imagine, from all sorts of different areas. Perhaps you only have a tiny fragment on a, on a stone or, or perhaps some parchment that survived. But can you paint a picture for us of how it is that we know anything at all about the Roman games? It's amazing because they took place so long ago. How do we know what we know about the Roman games? That's something really fun to think about. One uh, thing to be aware of is that the games were generally despised by the upper classes, although there were special seats for them and they were certainly present at the games. It was beneath their dignity to write about them. So, for instance, Tacitus will say in his Annals, which is a year-by-year history of the empire, he, he might say something like, nothing significant happened in this year unless you count the erection of the, the monstrosity of an amphitheater on the campus marches. <laughs> So we're lacking, you know, a huge swathe of evidence that we would love to have. But we do have a lot of epigraphic evidence. We have all these tombstones of gladiators that I've already mentioned. And maybe I should have stressed more than I did how remarkable it is that they freely acknowledge that they were gladiators or their, their successors, their, you know, their families who put up the tombstone. Do not try and disguise the fact that this was their, their career. And they're very upfront about how many times they they won, and that kind of thing. So um, it, this was evidently a profession that could generate some pride within the, the world of the arena. We also, of course, have physical evidence of a different kind from archaeological excavation, and this keeps coming out of the ground. Back in the 1990s, the Austrian team excavating at Ephesus in Turkey started to dig up a lot of skeletal evidence. And at first they thought they must have found a military cemetery because so many of these skeletons had very severe wounds that even showed up on the bones. But then after a while, they started to find a couple of tombstones and it was clear that these were gladiators. So that was our first gladiatorial barracks uh, to be excavated. And it was possible, obviously, for the forensic scientists in Vienna to run tests on these bones to check things like the gladiatorial diet, which indeed seems to have been a very high-carb diet, just as the ancient sources tell us. With a real sneer in their voice, they say, well, of course, the, the gladiatorial mash that they survive on in the, 
in the gladiatorial barracks. And yes, indeed, it does seem uh, from the evidence of the bones and the teeth that that is exactly what, what these people were eating. And because of the distribution of the, of the wounds that were so severe that they actually left evidence on the bone, we can tell something about their medical uh, treatment because so many of these wounds are healed wounds. And where they're not, then you can see that that must have been the final wound that actually killed the person. And you can also tell from the distribution of these wounds which parts of the body were most vulnerable. And this mostly maps very well onto what we know about their protective armor, except in the case of head wounds, because only one gladiatorial style doesn't wear a helmet, and that's the retiarius, the net fighter that I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago. Everybody else wears a helmet, and yet a very large proportion of these skeletons have very severe head wounds, one of which is holes regular distance apart from one another that must have been inflicted by Eretiarius's trident, which is a kind of nasty thing to think about. So it's very difficult to understand how it is that so many gladiators apparently received a head wound, because if they were all wearing their helmet, they shouldn't have. There can't have been that higher proportion of retiarii in this cemetery. So there are various ways of explaining this. One is that perhaps uh, those head wounds are actually the coup de grace administered after a gladiator had been defeated or so badly wounded that he would never fight again. Kind of the, after, the final execution, so to speak. Exactly. After the, the games were over, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that maybe gladiators just found their helmet so unbelievably constricting it was very hard to breathe wearing one of these things, very hard to see. Maybe some of them tore the thing off in the course of the combat, but that would be tantamount to suicide. I've been to various gladiatorial reenactments where, to a person, these, these enactors have told me how awful the helmet is. It is so stuffy inside that helmet, and it's so hard to see. You have to turn your head uh, to follow your opponent because you, you have such you have tunnel vision, really. Uh, very limited peripheral vision. Very limited peripheral vision. And that's, you know, wonderful lesson that every new piece of evidence that comes your way is a treasure, but it will raise a new difficulty. That brings more questions as well. Yes, every time. Has there ever been something in your career that you just knew was gospel truth, and then some new discovery came out and totally washed that away. Hmm. Well, one lives in terror that this is going to happen, of course. <laughs> it does happen when people are brave enough to make emendations, or at least to make supplements to, to a fragmentary inscriptions, and then the other half of the stone is discovered and completely contradicts the, the supplements that uh, the epigrapher has made. That's happened to some very, very famous scholars, but I have not been so rash as to propose a supplement to a, a damaged inscription, so it hasn't yet happened to me. Interesting. What drove the decline of the Roman games? Because obviously they, they petered out. Was it as simple as the, the fall of the Roman Empire, the split into two, the, the dissolution of what we think of as Rome, or, or was it more complex than that? I think it was complex. Um, it's still a very difficult problem to solve. We still don't really understand it. Some work was done on this back in the 1960s by Georges Ville, who I mentioned earlier. And it's really important to know the Christian sources for this period as well, because that gives us some evidence. 
It's very clear that gladiatorial combat died out long before the beast hunts did. For instance, uh, Cassiodorus in the 6th century, a Christian author, identifies the Colosseum as that egg-shaped building in Rome where the animals are displayed. And he doesn't even mention gladiators. Apparently, he doesn't know about them. And given the incredible expense of importing animals and the difficulties of importing animals when you've got, you know, trouble on the frontiers and so on, it seems very surprising that, that the animal displays should have lasted longer than, than gladiators. So then, we're, you know, we're left with the problem, was it simply that gladiators became so exponentially expensive? You will remember what I said earlier about uh, some of these office holders in the Greek East were very reluctant to stand for office because of the expense of the gladiatorial games that they had to put on as part of their priesthood or whatever. It may have been a very, very gradual shift in sort of communal thinking that this became a less acceptable practice. The Christians are a very interesting category because I mentioned earlier that some of them were martyred in the arena mainly by being exposed to beasts, but also with, in some other contexts. And they were a real thorn in the flesh of the Roman authorities because they welcomed the martyrdom as a, a sign of their, their allegiance to Christ, who had himself suffered such a terrible death on the cross. And was that a very different outlook on martyrdom or being killed in the arena than prior populations had? Well, basically, it meant that, that this was no longer a disincentive, that, that, that the punitive uh, or deterrent aspect of Roman punishment just got shot out of the water. So you have these interesting accounts of, of Roman officials who are desperate to try and persuade these Christians just to recant and go home. And they, they warn them, you know, if you don't deny that you're a Christian, I'm going to have to kill you. And then the Christian says, yes, 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 I want to be thrown to the lions. And so then the, the official says, well, I'm sorry, there are no lions. They're over. I'm just going to have to sit your throat. <laughs> that was their last resort, was to cheat the, the martyr of his expected glory. And that shows how this very extravagant sense of these Christian martyrs about, about the games basically subverted the whole principle, uh, the punitive principle of that, that side of the, of the games. So it's possible that maybe ultimately there was a kind of a change of sentiment and these things became uh, less popular. We do know that some of the very early popes recruited personal bodyguards from former gladiators, so certainly cashing in uh, on that aspect. It's very hard to explain why the games died when they did, but it does seem to be the case that the animal displays went on for longer. What was the long-term impact of the Roman games, both in Rome and Europe, around the world? Because you certainly are aware, one is certainly aware of Roman ruins around the world, but, but do you think there was a long-term impact from the games specifically uh, around Europe, around the world? Some people wonder whether the bullfights in Spain are a direct descendant of the Roman games, that is to say the animal displays, but there's no dotted line that leads straight from one to the other. So we really uh, can only speculate about that. I think for many people, the, these huge hunks of, of, of amphitheaters that survive around the empire are just a Roman ruin, and they're not even sure what happened in them. Uh, for those people who do know what happened in them, they are a monument to a certain outlook, a certain way of thinking about humanity that 
can give thoughtful people pause. Many people uh, make an analogy, actually, with medieval cathedrals, that in Roman times, the amphitheater was the largest, most significant building in the community. Nowadays, of course, their main message to us is how are the mighty fallen, because you see the thing surviving to, you know, five courses of stone or something like that. So it's just a shell of what it used to be. But it's still sometimes an impressive monument, and some people may realize what they stand for, but I'm sure many people don't. And Kathleen, final question for you, and I always like asking this to just to bring this historical topic into modern days, but what lessons have you taken away or what lesson have you taken away from the Roman games that you think applies to our world today? Well, two things here. One is things can actually change, that we don't have anything quite the same as gladiatorial combat uh, today. We have violent sports, football and and wrestling and that kind of thing. But we don't have games in which it is okay for people potentially to die. And uh, we don't have sports in which the participants are completely at the mercy of the entrepreneur. So that's one thing. The other thing which I think is very important is to realize that the Romans themselves thought of what they were doing as okay, perfectly okay. Perhaps somewhat despicable if you were a senator, these were just sort of popular enthusiasms, but there wasn't a massive, you know, outpouring of horror at at what was happening. And so I think it should make us think really carefully about what in our society is going to look reprehensible. 2,000 years hence, if there's still a planet, of course, with human beings on it, which is another question. But to us, gladiatorial combat is quite clearly, utterly wrong. But to the Romans, it wasn't. So what in our society that we are perfectly comfortable with is going to seem reprehensible to future generations? That should make us think. Professor Kathleen Coleman, thank you so much for joining us here on Riches and Power. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for the time. And it was really good to reconnect on a personal note. It was great to talk to you, Alex, and to catch up with you after all these years. So thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2022 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 